Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It was a different world then. It's all changed now. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, I'm calling from Canada. Could, could I ask you to do me a favor with that telephone for about 30 seconds? Go on. I'm collecting the sounds all around London. So would you just hold the phone up in the air so I can record the sound at that payphone location? Okay. Right, what exactly is the location? Uh, Leicester Square. All right, just hold it up in the air, would you? All right. Thank you. 30 seconds. Yeah. Okay. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. The broadcast world was darkened this week with sad news out of St. John's, Newfoundland, that Chris Brooks, one of our pioneering masters of radio documentary, died in a tragic accident. Chris was a gifted storyteller who mentored, influenced, and inspired countless radio makers. He won virtually every prize and distinction you could imagine, and was an absolute gem to work with, as some of us here at Ideas were privileged to have done. So to honor Chris's memory and achievements, we present a documentary he produced for Ideas in 2009. It's called Hark. It was produced by Chris Brooks, Recording. Paolo Pietropaolo, Recording. and Alan Hall. Recording. It's an acoustic journey through what Elizabethan England might have sounded like. I'm Bruce Smith. I'm a professor of English at the University of Southern California. And I was reading somewhere that every sound that had ever been made within the Earth's atmosphere still exists somewhere however faint those frequencies are, and that if we just had the right kind of technical equipment, we could hear the voice of perhaps Shakespeare himself playing the ghost in Hamlet. Uh, And I asked myself then, are the sounds of the past gone forever? Good exercise. It's excellent exercise, absolutely. All of us live in a distinctive soundscape, whether we pay attention to it consciously or not. You do these every day, I presume. Uh, We're part of a sound world. I think what's changed is our awareness of those sounds and our, our, our lack of acuity in being able to hear what is out there to hear for all of us.
we're, we're on the top of the tower at St Mary Le Beau in London. The sort of things you can see from here are that the church there is St Michael's Cornhill. Is that place with the dome? It's no, it's, it's the tower just up left from the dome. Oh yes, that's uh, St Michael's Cornhill, and you've got some of the big places. When we look at something, we feel as if we're casting our gaze that it's starting with us and it's moving toward an object that's out there. You know, actually, in Shakespeare's time, there were still many people who thought that that's exactly what happened when you look, that light beams were actually sent out from your eyes and touched the object that you were looking at and then came back to your eyes. Um, And uh, off in the distance, you can see Canary Wharf right in the distance. I feel very much in control of what I see. That's that tent-like structure that, that says Canary Wharf. Right out in the distance, so behind the cranes there you can see. Yes, yes, yes. Hearing works the other way around. When we listen to something, we're locating the source of the sound, not in ourselves, but in the object that's making the sound. So it's an exact reversal. Would you close your eyes and tell me each sound that you hear? Okay, I can hear a helicopter in the distance. Um, I think I can hear an air conditioning unit, hear a bus. Um, Hearing is not linear, it's like a sphere. Certainly the brakes of a bus, an aeroplane somewhere in the distance. We are surrounded by sound. There's certainly lots of traffic. Sound is above us, below us, behind us, to our right, to our left. I can't hear any people or any birds or any bells. Sound is a totally enveloping experience. It's certainly, predominantly, it's the traffic noise and and the aircraft that you hear. We're immersed in the sound. What do you imagine you would have heard four centuries ago? Um, I know you wouldn't have heard any aircraft for certain, um, or any vehicles of course, Um, so I suspect from up here um, you would have heard horses, I suspect. Um, You might well have heard a lot more conversation, I suspect you would have heard a lot more birds. Um, So I think it would have sounded very, very different. Perhaps you'd have heard a lot more boats on the river. Uh, There are boats on the river, um, but you don't hear very much of them from here. You can't actually see the river from here. Um, whereas then, I suspect, with the buildings being lower, you'd have actually seen the river and you'd have seen a lot more boat traffic and, and heard a lot of what was going on around the Port of London. I don't hear people. Very much, it's the internal combustion engine. I don't hear people. I don't hear people. I don't hear people. compacted earth. Now we go on to much lighter gravel. Recording. So this is a Foley Theatre and I'm Robin O'Donoghue, Head of Post-Production Sound for Pinewood and Shepparton Studios in London. We have some heavier, heavier sort of beach type rock.
and a bit of sand just next to it. And these surfaces, we have many, many surfaces. Um, I'm going to walk around just to give you a little idea. We have um, hard tarmac, which wasn't used in um, Shakespeare in Love. Recording. I say a play on both their houses. Where are you going? So over here we have hollow wooden boards, which we would have used probably for the upstairs of um, Joe Fiennes' house when he's, when he's writing his play in Shakespeare in Love. Um, when he ran upstairs, this is the sort of stuff we would have used. Ow! Will! I am a dead man and buggered to boot. My theatre is closed by the play these 12 weeks. My actors are forced to tour the inn-yards of England, while Mr Burbage and the Chamberlain's men are invited to court. Recording. There's a scene where Joe finds he's chased through the streets of London. As he runs, we have a footstep artist who will physically run in time with his feet. This foley artist will start off on flagstones and then onto the street, which is compacted earth and stones, and run in time with Joe finds. He's being chased. So we will now record the soldiers chasing him. Probably we'll do two or three of those together. So uh, we have two, uh, two foley artists running. Their clothes, aren't they wearing chain, which would rattle or make a noise? Well, maybe a sword or a harness or something. So we'll jingle a bit of that. So now we have their running feet and we have some sound of their clothes. He runs through some chickens at one point. Um, so we have the chicken sound and they all scatter everywhere. So we'll pan that sound of the chickens off to the right, off to the left. And you can slowly start to see how the whole soundscape starts to build up. realise the sound of London of that period. No cars, no traffic, no planes. So we, we not invented a soundtrack, but we had to imagine what it would be like then. Romeo and Ethel. <laughs> Who wrote that? Nobody. You were writing it for me. I gave you three pound a month. Sir. We would look at um, the period it is set in. And the images we see on the screen are London with muddy streets, small amounts of paved areas. It's the Henslow. Will you lend me 50 pounds? This is not through research. This is really, to be quite frank, looking at what we see on the screen. I feel very much in control of what I see. The production designer, the man who built the sets, the man who built what we see on the screen, would have researched it to make sure it looked correct. But his is a visual thing, you see. You, know, you, can, you can see it from paintings, from archive footage, from written notes, and also images, drawn images. You can see, see. he could see what London looked like. Sound is... It's impossible. Will you lend me 50 pounds? There's no recordings of that period. We can only assume, you know, I've read lots of novels, but not for this film. I mean, I, I read, I quite like historical novels, and you get an impression. I mean, no one knows really what London really sounded like at that time. I mean, there's horses, of course, animals. So uh, I don't know if it is documented what it sounded like then. I'm probably quite noisy in a different way. You can't, uh, there's no recording of that period. Mm. So that's just a fact. So we'd have to use, you'd have to imagine it and use common sense, really. You'd have to imagine it, actually. Hmm. Um, I suppose you'd hear a lot of noise because people live together more. More of a community. Mm. That's how I imagine it, and therefore you would have noise of people cooking and talking. 
Might have heard sheep, pigs I would have thought more in those days than sheep. Mm, probably a dog. <laughs> Not the traffic. I don't, definitely wouldn't have heard traffic. You know. That's about it, I think. Thoroughly. There's the bells. Ailey. There's the bells. Ninety. One hundred. One hundred and twenty. There's the bells. The loudest sounds that a person in Shakespeare's time uh, could have heard turned out to be the sounds of cannon being fired off on certain occasions in the Tower of London. But aside from that, which was a very special effect and very short-lived, the loudest sound would be iron-rimmed wheels on a cobble street, which is very defined because it passes. That's the nature of it. Of course, in one of the small streets where a market was gathered, there'd be quite a hubbub. People selling in the streets, they each would have distinctive cries for selling their particular wares. But that is all on a very human level, and so utterly different from the soundscape that we're used to. Shakespeare and his contemporaries were operating in a much quieter world than the world we inhabit. You're a damn good whistler. Thank you very much. It's funny you should speak to me now. This is my second, the week of my second anniversary on the underground, but I've been busking for 14 years around the country. And where are we? What's this tube stop? This is St. Paul's. Lovely. Thank you very much. Okay, my friend, no problem. The loudest sounds that they could hear were only one-third as loud as the sounds that surround many of us who live in cities all the time. We are absolutely surrounded by the noise made by the machines that we ourselves have made. And that has the effect of muffling the sound. In visual terms, it would be as if we were always looking at the world through a fog. Without this kind of fog of sound, if I can put it that way, individual sounds become much, much more distinct. And once they strike your ear with that distinctiveness, you are able to focus on them with a, a, a kind of intensity that is difficult in the kind of oral fog that I've been, uh, that I've been talking about. Distinct, distinctiveness. Distinctiveness. I'm Barry Truax, the author of Acoustic Communication.
There's the whole story about every sound. So in your neighborhood, for instance, just think, how many sounds would you identify absolutely with complete context? Who it is, what their relationship is to you, what they were doing, is this uh, their normal pattern, is this their abnormal pattern, what does that mean, is this a special event, you know, could you distinguish all of these things just by ear? Good morning, my treasures. Today, we, we tend to have these broadband sounds that are just simply there, they're meaningless, they're dull, they're uninteresting. Acoustically, if you just listen to our soundscape, it's actually simpler in the sense, if I can use the ecological terms, fewer dominant species dominate everything and there are fewer small-scale variety sounds. We just take for granted reproduced sound coming out of speakers. But everything, of course, prior to the technology was established by its source and its context. So, of course, you would listen differently. Of course, that's not to say that we, we, we're not aestheticizing and saying, oh, well, they're listening to how delightful it was to hear the blacksmith doing, you know, it was information. It was information, and it was something you needed. If you needed a, a, uh, a delivery, well, then you would listen for the cart that would be coming with its horses, you know, and you'd know the kind of sound that, that you'd be listening for. The large energy sounds that are larger than human scale start dominating, and then we stop listening because they're no longer on the human scale. This is our complex modern world for you. It's not complex at all. It's disgustingly simple and uninformative and bland and uninteresting, right? There's no information here other than that the information is that there's no information. That's the message is there's, we're nowhere compared to what it would have been like if we were in England in the 16th century, right? You couldn't have experienced what how this boring environment that we are in, we're nowhere. nowhere, nowhere. Most of us have, in fact, because of the pressures of modern life, learned not to listen, and we have to relearn it. Hello, Jay speaking. Oh, hello, I'm calling from Canada. I'm not sure where I'm calling. Uh, sorry, who are you calling? Where are you calling from? We're calling from Canada. Right. And we're collecting sounds from all around London. And I'm wondering if you could just hold the telephone up so I could record 30 seconds of the sound. Is that any, you're only in a small office here, mate. That's uh, fine. All right. No that's problem. fine. Where, where right. exactly is it? It's at Waterloo all right. in London. Hold would you on. just hold the phone up for 30 seconds? Yeah, no problem. Thank hold you. Hold on. Two five nine four. All right, mate. Lovely. Thank you very okay. much. No problem. All right. Goodbye. Cheers, mate.
listening for Shakespeare and his contemporaries was a much more visceral, a much more direct physical contact uh, with the world. And it's not just because uh, there were no automobiles and there were fewer machines uh, to alienate individuals from the natural world. That's, that's, that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an attention to the process of listening in which you realize intensely your physical relationship to the world in which you exist. In our own time and place, we tend to think of our bodies as being chemical electrical machines that sound strikes our eardrums and that it sets up an electrical current in our nerves which carries that sound to our brains where we interpret the sound uh, and often fix it by giving it uh, a verbal name. Hello, Jay speaking. Things were much more fluid in Shakespeare's time. The story that they told themselves was a very old story that went all the way back to Aristotle and to Galen in ancient Greek. The idea was that any sensation was transmitted through your body through an airy liquid called spiritus. And that when you heard a sound, it went to a faculty in your brain called common sense. Not common sense in terms of practicality, but common sense in terms of all the senses being common. So that the sound that you heard would be fused with what you were seeing, what you were smelling, what you were touching. It would also be fused with memories. And in that form, it would be delivered to the heart where you would have a visceral reaction to what you were hearing and your heart would either dilate uh, in uh, enjoyment of what you were hearing and in a desire to know more about it, to embrace it, or it would contract in, uh, in, 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 in fear or anxiety. result of these contractions or dilations of the heart would be felt all over the body as this intercommunicating system of spiritus uh, went from the toes to the head to the fingertips all through the body and that any hearing experience would be a whole body experience. It's a different story from the one that we tell ourselves. Even though the story we tell ourselves may to our lights be more true to the way flesh nerves and electricity operate, it may not be delivering us up to the world with quite the openness to experience that that older story, that story that Shakespeare and his contemporaries knew, uh, can manage for us.
You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can find us on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. We're featuring a documentary to honour master documentary maker Chris Brooks, who died tragically this week in St. John's. Chris was a pillar of radio and theatre in Newfoundland, and his work influenced generations of radio makers around the world. This documentary is called Hark, a kind of sonic reimagining of what Elizabethan England might have sounded like. Hark won multiple prizes when it was produced in 2009. And when you listen to it now, you can hear how Chris thought with and through sound. And how even the guttural grunting of a pig can reveal a whole other world. Hello, pig. Mrs. Pig and Bernard. Are you recording that? I'm Di Hadley, Diana Hadley. I've lived at Middle Watchbury Farm all my life. And the village, Barford, Warwick, you know, obviously an agricultural community since certainly in Elizabethan times and before. He's a bit slow. He can't, he can't see very well because his ears are over his eyes and he can't hear very well because his ears are over his ear holes. He's a Gloucester old spot. I mean, they're a well-known old breed. Right, Mrs P, do you want your tea? Tea time. Listening to Ideas in Canada on CBC Radio 1, across North America on Sirius Satellite Radio, 
and around the world on cbc.ca. I'm Paul Kennedy. Today, we're exploring the acoustic world of Elizabethan England. Hark! I can hear sheep in the background barring, lambs looking for their mothers because they've wandered off. I can hear pigs snuffling around eating. I can hear hens probably stealing the pig's food, nicking the pig's food. Um, in the background, that's the uh, last of the rush hour traffic on the M40. <laughs> I can hear a background, I can hear an aeroplane now. That's it. <laughs> and what do you imagine you would have heard four centuries ago, right here? Right here. Bird song. Recording. We used to call it the Dawn Chorus. Thousands of birds, hundreds of birds. You'd hear them. You don't know. I think it's through this type of uh, farming today that's got rid of them. I'm John Drew. I'm a Kenilworth Warwickshire man. I have written 15 books on Kenilworth and Warwickshire. Um, in those days, you see, the farming was of a different nature to what you get today. And I think that's why you had so many. I mean, for example, thousands of uh, um, starlings and different blackbirds like that, absolute thick clouds of them going from north to south, of course, there's a wood on the castle estate, but they've all gone. There was a period before clocks and bells regulated the life of, of, of Europe when it would have been, you know, the seasonal sounds, the daily sounds, you know, when the birds came and it would change. The idea that nine o'clock was the same everywhere at every time of the year is, of course, ridiculous. Right, nine o'clock in the morning might be pre-dawn. The dawn chorus might be already over. It might not have even have happened yet. You know, so the sense of time. I mean, sound obviously exists in time, but it's that's our conception that sound is in time. But what it does is it actually creates time through rhythm, through cycles, through patterns. It creates your your sense of flow.
My name's Anthony Rooley. I've specialised in uh, music of earlier times. Come and buy my fish. Best fish. Best fish. People selling in the streets, in a busy street market, they each would have distinctive cries for selling their particular wares. And so you'd have people selling fresh flowers and they would be calling out the flowers' names that were in season. So you'd actually have a sense of time as well. You, you know, the passing of the year would be em em embedded uh, in the sounds of the cries. This is embodied, actually, in song. There are a few composers of the time who enjoyed to bring in normal strands of life, not art music as such, but embodying the love of folklore and traditions and well-known sayings and epithets and so on, all into a musical effect, so you have a kind of musical soundscape. And the most famous of these is Thomas Ravenscroft. He's really quite a master. The Crier's Song of Cheapside, it takes us right into the centre of London, east end of London, 1600. But there's no recording, recording. of that period. It's, you'd have to imagine it. Imagine it. so important? Why was sound so important? As indeed it certainly was. Because it was a means of addressing the soul. It was the way of the external world entering the internal world of the individual. What do you like? Do you buy so see what you like? The famous fugings of London street cries by Orlando Gibbons and others, we know that they did have something to do with the actual street cries because cherry sellers are presented in Gibbons with the same cadences as the cherry sellers in Daring, for example. Cherry ripe, 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 cherry ripe, 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 appears to be the way that cry uh, sounded actually in the streets. Lily white muscles, But these fugings of London street cries, after all, were put together as music. So I suppose we might think of them as being like postcards that we buy when we travel. Other things have been washed out. The smells, any of those things that might have been part of our actual experience in visiting the site uh, have been prettied up. They've been removed. And I suppose we need to think about Gibbons and those other street cries in that way. Walk kitchen stop, have you met? 
There's um, a satire by William Baldwin called Beware the Cat that was printed in 1584, and I have to chuckle because he really has done this amazing job of uh, cataloging all of the sounds. Now, this is totally made up, I guess, because it's supposed to be uh, the sounds that this man, Jeffrey Streamer, heard when his ears were miraculously opened, and he could hear not just the sounds that were right around him in the room where he was in the city of London, but everything up to 100 miles away. Barking of dogs, grunting of hogs, walling of cats, rumbling of rats, gaggling of geese, humming of bees, nousing of bucks, gaggling of ducks. Listen to the lyrics set by all of these wonderful composers of this extraordinary period. Cackling of hens, scrap. And you're aware of the nature of the sound of the English language. Toads in the bogs. So wonderfully varied. Chirping of crickets, shutting of wickets. So much variety. Shrieking of owls, flittering of fowls. But how many words are actually born in onomatopoeic colouring and desire? Routing of knaves, snorting of slaves, farting of churls, fizzling of girls, ringing of bells, counting of coins, mounting of groins, whispering of lovers, springing of plovers, groaning and spewing baking and brewing, scratching and rubbing, watching and shrubbing, with such sort of commixed noises as would deaf anybody to have heard. Hello? Hello? Hello. We're recording the sounds of London through the telephone. Would you mind holding that phone up in the air just for 20 seconds? I can record the sound on the street there. Sure. All right. Where is it exactly? Bell's Court, mate. All right, would you mind? Yeah, of course. What, you done? Yes, lovely, thank you. I think one of the most important things about Elizabethan England is the sound of the English language at the time. Today, it's not uncommon to have people talking at an intonation and staying at the same level the whole of the time, and they just Hello? and they might change the speed, sure. but not often that either. It can sometimes get really weary Hello? because they're just digging in and staying on a monotone. Hello? Uh, Leicester Square. Sure. You're only in a small office. Oh, thank you. Oh, this would have been impossible in Elizabethan England. In Elizabethan England, a wide variety of speaking pictures was expected. Come gentle knight, come loving black-browed knight, give me my Romeo, and when I shall die... A good speaking voice would use uh, about six tones in its speech. Give me my Romeo, and when I shall die... That's from quite high to quite low. And this was expected in speech. Oh, I have bought the mansion of a love, but not possessed it, and though I am sold... So, if you were a good orator, you would use this full range of sounds from top to bottom. So tedious is this day, as is the night before some festival, to an impatient child that hath new robes and may not wear them. Shakespeare was writing for a theatre in which voices and hearing were at least as important, and maybe more important, than seeing and looking. 
in Shakespeare's time, only about 25% of the population could read, which meant that information was conveyed person to person, and being conveyed person to person, it was conveyed from mouth to ear. Give me my Romeo, and when I shall die... From mouth to ear. The very word hark, I think, is an interesting example because the ah sound is regarded as the fundamental sound of creativity. The ah gives it a beginning, the aspiration. But the the ah would have been more rolled in Elizabethan England than we do today. We see it today, hark. They would have said hark. So hark is truly onomatopoeic. It commands attention and it brings us to an exclamation mark, which is into silence. Hark, listen to this, because it's worth listening to. You know, I've said that the sounds of the past could be recovered if we had the right kind of technical equipment, but many of the sounds are recoverable, including the sounds of church bells. Uh, If the same bells are hanging in the belfry, you would be hearing the same sounds that uh, one could have heard in Shakespeare's time. We're at St. Peter's Church, Barford. I'm Michael Ashton, the town captain. So in that corner there, that's the oldest bell. That came from, from a redundant church at Atherston on Stour. And I think that's 13th century. Yes. yes. That's, uh, this is the tenth, the heaviest bell in the tower. Right, should we do some uh, rounds of call changes? <clears throat> right, and lemons say the bells of St Clement's you owe me five farthings say the bells of St Martin's when will you pay me say the bells of Old Bailey when I am rich say the bells of Shoreditch when will that be said the bells of Stepney I do not know said the great bell of Bow uh, and all those churches are churches of London I'm Simon Meyer I'm the steeplekeeper of St Mary Le Bow and we're currently standing in the ringing chamber of St Mary Le Bow Church and actually if you look at the picture on the wall over there that is uh, line drawings of all the churches in the nursery rhyme. The sort of ringing that we do is, is what they always sort of say, English style ringing. And it's quite different to what you might see on the continent, France, Germany, places like that. There, the bells just sort of hang mouth downwards and just swing backwards and forwards a little bit. When we ring the bells, we actually ring them mouth upwards, all the way around 360 degrees to mouth upwards and back again. And by doing that, when they mouth upwards, 
there's a little bit of balance there, there's a little bit of control. So whereas the sort of the continental way they just sort of jangle together, we can actually get some regular patterns of, of ringing. I mean, change ringing started around, you know, late 1500s, early 1600s was the time, and as I say, Bow had a peal of bells then. There weren't, there weren't that many places that had bells at that stage or had competent teams of ringers. London had a number of places. And initially, the numbers of bells that were, were rung were small numbers, and if you look back to that sort of era, there were maybe five bells in the tower here. So bells have been here in St Mary the Bow for a very long time, and there are various sort of records of things that happened at, at that sort of time. Let me, let me just look in the book here. I think that was... Yeah, here we go. It's um, Philip Gershow, who visited London in 1602. Uh, his first impression was how noisy the city was. So here is what Gershow has to say on September the 12th, 1602. Recording. On arriving in London, we heard a great ringing of bells in almost all the churches going on very late in the evening. Also on the following days, until 7 or 8 o'clock in the evening. We were informed that the young people do that for the sake of exercise and amusement, and that sometimes they lay considerable sums of money as a wager who will pull a bell the longest or ring it in the most approved fashion. The old queen is said to have been pleased very much by this exercise, considering it as a sign of the health of the people. That probably would have been the beginning of change ringing and in those early days there were a lot of competitions between different teams of ringers. Uh, competitions for prizes, for money, for beer. Uh, ringers are, are very well connected with beer. Um, but it's thirsty work. If you ring for a long time, you, you need something to quench the thirst afterwards. Of course we have very good beer here, so uh, it's uh, any excuse. tons of bell. Because they're a modern casting, all the harmonics beautifully tuned in there and the hum goes on and on and on. a Londoner was to be born within the sound of Bow Bells. Um, the sound would have travelled three quarters of a mile or a mile or so, so London was very much defined as sort of you know, a mile around Bow. Um, and that was a true Londoner, that was a Cockney. That's possibly unique, because I can't think of anywhere else that the boundary of the community was defined by how far the sound of bells travelled. And they were relatively large bells even then, a lot smaller than we've got now, but still relatively large. And I suppose that's why they became the, you know, the great bow bells, the great bell of bow, because they were big for any church, but it was a church right in the centre of London. And of course they were rung for the curfew as well, so to tell people it's the end of the day, uh, and sometimes in the morning and things like that. So they were actually used as a signal then to tell people, you know, get up, go to work, work's finished, go home. And 
they were uh, said to have called um, Dick Whittington back to London. He was leaving London very disheartened and he said to have heard Bow Bells about a mile away and he felt they were calling him back, which would have been quite feasible in those days because um, cities weren't as noisy as they are for a start, so it would have been quite feasible he did hear the bells from here. But the biggest problem you have now is it's surrounded by relatively tall buildings um, and I suspect they would absorb the sound. But you don't really hear these bells. You, know, you go down the street now, you don't hear them that much because the streets just block it all out. Thomas Brangman and I'm a, uh, a busker playing the hammer dulcimer and um, we are on the south bank of the Thames um, we're under Southwark Bridge I always go for either um, Blackfriars Bridge or this bridge just because um, the acoustics really um, yeah it works yeah you get the atmosphere and there would have been uh, players of this very instrument uh, in the Globe Theatre as well, which is uh, just up there. Greek music we hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Sirens. Silence. <laughs> what did we read? What was that says? Oh, gosh. A proverb yeah. we read, a Jewish proverb. Um, costs one... If silence costs a penny... No, no, if... If words cost a penny, silence would cost two. two. Yeah. We tend to talk about sound and forget silence. I think the Elizabethan world was infinitely more aware, conscious of the value and importance of silence. In fact, philosophically, uh, they regarded that sound, music particularly, could be seen to be simply a decoration of silence. Because where does it start from? It starts from silence, it emerges, it comes to its full height, tension, there's a resolution of the tension, and it returns to silence. Silence is something that a lot of us in our own time find it difficult to tolerate. Recording. Can we tolerate silence? It seems to me that we live in a time where silence has become frightening. Hello? 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 Have I got somewhere in London? Hello? Silence is like the frame around an oral picture. You've got to have the silence before you can really hear.
The concept of the music of the spheres was actually a standard part of everybody's awareness, even the uneducated in Elizabeth's time. Looking at the heavens, you see the planets are moving. Anything that moves has to make a sound. When John Dowland chooses to make a silence in all four parts, in that chink of silence, we hear the music of the spheres. It was understood that these great planets moving in the heavens, each one made its own particular and individual sound. But the sound was so great and so permanent that we couldn't hear it. The physical music, when it becomes silent, allows the human mind to hear an echo of that greater sound. And that's the only time we can experience the music of the spheres because its sound is there with us permanently. It's a hum, the hum of the universe, and it goes on forever and a day. Hello? Hello? Have I got somewhere in London? Hello? Yes. That's, uh... Yes. Every sound that has ever been made within the Earth's atmosphere still exists somewhere, however faint those frequencies are. And if we just had the right kind of technical equipment, we could hear the voice of perhaps Shakespeare himself playing the ghost in Hamlet. Uh, and I asked myself then, are the sounds of the past gone forever? Hello? Hello? You've been listening to Hark, a sonic exploration of Elizabethan England. The program was produced by Chris Brooks, who died earlier this week in St. John's, Newfoundland. Also on the production team were Alan Hall and Paolo Pietropaolo. Paolo has written a piece about his time working with Chris on this project and others at Battery Radio in St. John's, where Chris Brooks was based. That's on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer for Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Nikola Lukšić is the senior producer. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.